Being open to change is frightening and it's hard and it demands often hard work and sustained effort. You need to desire that change and that newness of life. That alone is going to sustain the journey and the work of conversion or healing or whatever the change is that's at stake. Welcome to Purposeful Lab, a Maja Center podcast. I'm Katherine Hadra with Dr. Dan Keebler, and this is the season finale of season three of our podcast, uh, and we'll be bringing part two of our interview with Dr. Sophia Carosa. Yeah, we're going to look at um, particularly her research, a very fascinating um, research she's doing in her, her postdoctoral work mm-hmm. that uh, combines looking at AI, using AI to look at you know changes in the brain as the result of early childhood uh, trauma and how that affects cognition. So it's very, very fascinating. We get into a lot of topics about, you know, brain plasticity, how the brain can change and so forth. She's a young woman, but a really fascinating and impressive background and resume. She's a Catholic neuroscientist, currently a research fellow at Harvard Medical School, where she applies artificial intelligence to the study of child brain development. So with that, here's part two of our conversation with Dr. Sophia Carosa. Your enthusiasm for your research just comes through. And so I, I want to delve into the research that you're doing in your, in, in your postdoctoral mm. uh, work, um, in, in particular looking at uh, the factors that affect uh, early brain development. And so uh, maybe you could just give a summary of what, what you're doing and we can follow up with some questions. Sure. Yeah, yeah I'd be happy to. So I discovered, um, let me introduce you to why I study what I do, because that's often the best um, mode of entry, I think. So I study what I do because I had a profound experience when I was 19 years old of working at an orphanage in South America, an orphanage in a school for underprivileged children, many of whom had been welcomed off the slums of Asuncion in Paraguay. And they had grown up without robust relationships around them, um, to say the least. Many of them had also experienced profound violence or deprivation. Some of them couldn't, couldn't speak. Others couldn't relate normally to one another or to adults. And yet, while I was there and faced with the, the gravity of this suffering and my own powerlessness to, to change what these children were facing, I, at the same time, I witnessed a miracle that, that the re- religious sister who was running this orphanage, the way that she loved them, as a mother would her children, right? This love transformed how they were in the world. It gave them a new lease on life. It enabled them to one of them in particular, I saw absolutely changed in the in the brief months that I was there. He he had a new capacity for relationship with others, a new ability to play that he was almost like a new boy. And at the point I'd, I'd begun studying the brain and I knew that something had to be happening in his nervous system that was dramatic and radical. And when I looked in my neuroscience textbooks, they, I couldn't make sense of it. You know, I'm like, how... How is it that a nervous system that's been so shaped by experiences of violence and deprivation can then begin again, begin anew, as you were saying about plasticity earlier? So because of this, I decided to go to graduate school and to really investigate how our early experiences in life shape the emergence of our brain networks and the communication highways in the brain that support our cognitive and psychological functioning. So that's what I researched. My PhD was on... um, across species in rodents and in humans, how deprivation early in life um, changes the organization of our brain, our brain structure. And now I'm taking a more interdisciplinary, innovative approach using uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, 
to try to bridge the the gap that currently exists in the literature between how these brain networks are organized and how they support learning and memory, which we see after experiences of abuse and neglect in particular, but variations in the early life environment in general, those things tend to be different later on for those kids. They're the marks of what you've experienced that remain in your ability to learn. And when you're talking early childhood, what time frame are you looking at? Like zero to three? Those are the most important years when it comes to the, the relational landscape of a child. But I am extending that window because of what we said earlier about lifetime plasticity. I'm looking at experiences that children have up until early to mid-adolescence, so 8 to 12 years old. Yeah, I think a lot of ears will be perking up at this topic um, because some kind of questions I have entering into this conversation is, A, has everyone experienced childhood trauma? Like, has every single human experienced childhood trauma? But then B, you look at, for example, the story you just shared of an orphan who experienced, you know, violence. You know, maybe there was hunger and, you know, food deprivation. And so, you know, you hear these stories of just extreme trauma. Are there are there people and brains that are just hmm, can withhold more trauma than others? Are there brains that are more sensitive and have a greater reaction to a trauma that might not seem as profound? Yeah, really good questions and certainly areas that we're still investigating. I would say on the on the first question about whether or not we've all experienced trauma, I mean, a theological answer is yes, because of original sin, that we live in a, in a world that's fallen. But in the brain, we see this in that there's no, there's no environment that you can grow up in that won't shape you Um, for better or for worse, into modes of behavior that are suited to that environment. And this does not always help you when you go somewhere new. And so whether it's just idiosyncrasies of your family culture or really is a deprivation of the kind of love that you're meant to have, there are going to be elements of your environment that then manifest later on in in difficulty and in suffering. This is a part of human life. and, And again, it's, I think, a place where we see that we're in need of redemption. Um, and that we can participate in that by loving one another with with compassion. And uh, toward your your second question, I would say that there are certainly elements of our bodies and our brains that make us more or less vulnerable to trauma. So we see some kids who experienced what others would look upon and objectively is just horrific uh, deprivation, but have emerged in a sense unscathed or indistinguishable from a child who hadn't been through that. Whereas others are much more sensitive and the slightest environmental perturbation can result in um, an experience of mental illness or of developmental difference. Now, some of this is due to differences in um, the wiring of our brain and the expression of certain receptors for stress hormones. And there are any number of epigenetic factors we could talk about. Some of it's also personality. But one of the most intriguing factors for me is um, the role of relationship. So that In other words, a child who has a single supportive relationship with a loving adult early in life can withstand much more adversity than a child who is left alone. So even if there's abuse and neglect in the home, if that child has a grandmother or a coach or a pastor, someone who looks upon him or her with just unconditional love, that protects against the mental health and even the neurocognitive impact of some of the more difficult things that child's facing. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and you mentioned to me earlier about um, what you're so, sort of finding that that there's not one region of the brain that, yeah. that's divided, but it's a, this holistic. The whole organization might be um, uh, different, right? In, yeah. In these, uh, um, in, in again, goes back to you know how complex the 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 organ uh, of the brain is, um, and does that make it then harder? You think? to to correct these things right if you know if it's a small change here in the brain but it seems to be a global disorganization what the, what these these can trigger you could right? look at it that way yeah, yeah. you could also <laughs> look at it in terms of well if our negative experiences affect not just the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala but really every pathway throughout the whole brain so too our positive experiences don't just affect again our hippocampus and our amygdala but the whole brain is taken up and implicated in experiences of love and care and abundance. And so when we, whether the child belongs to you or not, when we care for children, the love that we communicate through physical care, emotional care, education, really engages their whole body and their whole brain in a way that can communicate, as I mentioned, happened at this orphanage the summer I was there, that can communicate a new life to them. And so, yeah, so I think it's beautiful how our whole biology is taken up in our relationships with each other, even when it comes at the risk of experiencing um, a violence or the wound of sin from another person. And this, this reorganization uh, shapes their behavior yeah. to some extent. So I, I just, like, I've heard people argue, well, you know, that, that shows that we don't have free will or freedom. Like uh, my experience, it was, was bad. It shaped my brain this way. How so I'm just, I am just deal with me, you know? Um, and, uh. and uh, you know, I, I've, uh, how, how would you respond? Well, I think first of all, that's a misunderstanding of what freedom is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> freedom is not the capacity for unfettered choice in everything that you do in life. That, that wouldn't be freedom. That'd be complete arbitrariness. You know, freedom, freedom is something that takes place Within a context, you have reasons for behavior, and it's not absolute, it, particularly because we're fallen. There are constraints on our freedom. So it can certainly be the case that one's relational landscape early in life limits their freedom to choose the good and adhere to what's good for them later on in life. I don't. That's true of me. That's true of everyone, right? But, um, but it doesn't at all deny the capacity that we have for uh, agency for action, for something from within that we're not compelled to do, but, but we choose out of our own volition and thereby participate in um, our, our fulfillment. And so that possibility is never taken away from a human being, no matter what's happened to them. It can be very constrained, but it's never taken away absolutely. And I think you see this in the brain that it, you, it doesn't make sense. The brain as an organ doesn't make sense if you ignore the role of the agency of the organism, um, it's not like an artificial neural network where it carries out what the, what the engineer tells it to. <laughs> it really is, it's a life, right? And it's, it's directed, there's an intrinsic purposiveness to it that can't be chalked up to external influence and constraint. And it's interesting, am I writing this, that you, um, it's more difficult to, to deal with this the, the, the longer the brain has mm -hmm. had these, you know, you, you, you do lose some um, plasticity as, as, as you age, but you still have, you know, the ability to form memories and yeah. change the behavior. But, but Absolutely. That, um, when, you know, is there a, yeah, like a window where it really drops off? Like, is it the, the first five years, first 10, 20 
Yeah. Is it too late for me? That's a- <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 32. No, no, no. <laughs> if you want to learn a language as a native speaker, it is too late for you, which reflects that there are different windows depending on the domain. So if a child, for example, grows up uh, in an environment, there's some tragic stories of feral children. Not those, I mean, typically what you imagine is a child growing up with wolves, but more often what happens is the child is locked in a room or a basement and not cared for for sometimes a decade, 15 years. Um, these truly tragic, uh, which we see from, from those children and from studies in other animals, that there are windows of plasticity that do shut for things like um, visual experience and language and even some forms of uh, socializing that you do need to have some kind of experience in that area if the plasticity is going to work the way that it should. Um, but those more extreme cases aside, there really is no set time in development when plasticity shuts off. It gradually drops off over the course of childhood. And we say that the brain is generally finished maturing by your late 20s, a little bit later for men than for women. But uh, <laughs> But plasticity in most areas, you know, you can still pick up a new skill, you form new memories, you can navigate new relationships. And all of that is, in a sense, because your brain remains plastic for the whole of your lifespan. So it's fascinating, too, how, I mean, the brain really protects itself, too. If there are, like, horrible memories as a child, can't your brain, like, kind of forget about it, too, and you'll have repressed memories. But I think one of the most important things that you're saying is this you maintain throughout the rest of your life the ability to heal mm-hmm. and be repaired. And you use that phrase to begin in you. What does that require? Is it relationship? Is that the key? Yeah, I mean, I would say, again, as a Christian, grace, uh, that you need something to enter into your life and break you out of previous habits or to heal your wounds and to give you a new path to follow. Um this is grace. It's a gift freely given. It doesn't come from you. But on the level of the mind and the brain, what I would say is, is exactly the way that often takes shape is through a relationship that enters onto the scene and, and, and through desire, through a relationship awakening your desire to change. Because being open to change is frightening and it's hard and it demands often hard work and sustained effort. And so if you're going to be motivated to do that, you need to have, you know, neuroscientists would say recruitment of your reward system. You need to desire that change and that newness of life. That alone is going to sustain the journey and the work of conversion or healing or whatever the change is that's at stake. But again, you have that agency. Yes. Your freedom needs to be involved. Yeah. So in your, your research, you have a, a relatively large um, data set you're, you're working with of uh, somewhere around 10,000 um, children. children and looking at that. And uh, can you just, I, I think you said you're looking at brain images of those and sort of correlating that with um, uh, different uh, um, psychological factors. Is that? Yeah. So I'm interested in how elements of the early environment come together to shape the whole brain, as you mentioned before, not just one region or two, but really the whole brain is implicated. And prior research has taken a pretty narrow perspective on elements of the early environment that are contributing factors, looking mainly just at, for example, household income or whether or not you've experienced physical abuse. But I think anyone who's a persistent and observant, uh, anyone who's a persistent observer of children will know that 
numerous factors go into their development. It's how big is your family? It's what are your family dynamics like? What is your neighborhood like? And so I'm taking data from this large um, pioneering cohort study called the ABCD study, Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development, ABCD. And they have data on 10,000 children, again, as you mentioned, brain imaging scans, but they also have questionnaires that their mothers filled out. They have linked to census information, so this rich, detailed picture of what the early life environment looked like. Because were your parents married? And um, what was it like in terms of the conflicts you had in your, fo- in your home? How supported did you feel? That kind of thing. And what I'm doing is using a data-driven analysis to identify which of those elements of the early life environment predicts how much white matter you have, which are the communication pathways in the brain, and how that white matter is organized into networks later on in life. And then I'm using information on these children's cognitive abilities to try to say, well, why do we care about the brain at all, right? Does it mediate and does it explain some of this relationship that so much research has found between your early life environment and your learning and memory later in life? So this is one um, analysis that I'm working on at the moment. And I'm excited to find that, um, again, as you mentioned before, there's really a broad range of changes in the brain that we observe um, based as a function of your early life environment. It's not limited to just those regions that you would expect based on the literature of your frontal cortex, but really the whole brain is involved. And um, with these nuanced changes that do seem to account for later cognitive differences. So this is one main analysis, but I am, as you mentioned before, also trying to use machine learning and artificial intelligence. And so I'm taking um, these brain networks and I'm using a newly developed technology to transform them into recurrent neural networks. So this is a kind of artificial neural network that is sort of similar to how brain networks process information. And you can train these networks on cognitive tasks. So I'm taking these biologically derived networks, training them on a variety of different um, demands of learning and memory and seeing whether or not this can account for computational properties of the networks can account for what we see in children later on in life. So you're modeling um, the the different organizations you see in the ones that have the trauma and say, well, let's model this and see, does it it seem to be uh, dysfunctional, not dysfunctional, but leading to different cognitive abilities? Yes, absolutely. So trying to really press on that relationship between the brain and cognition. Can we use artificial uh, intelligence and machine learning to really say, well, why does it matter that their brain networks are organized differently? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and have you been, the people follow these people or these children for many years and yes. looking at. So it's a events, longitudinal study. study. So they're conducting ongoing yeah. follow ups. Yeah. I think a lot of people are weary of AI, but this might be, you know, an instance where it can be really beneficial, yes. hopefully. Yes. I think a lot of the concern about AI. To, in my perspective, is overblown, uh, which is not to say that we don't need careful and rigorous work to demarcate ethical uses of AI. But AI is built upon imitation of human intelligence, and it's a very powerful tool to leverage distinctively human strengths and increase our capacity to turn those strengths into the good of other people. You see this in medical diagnostic imaging, and I think you see it in my capacity for research. And so in general, I think that when used within 
ethical limits, it can be a very powerful tool for advancing human flourishing. Going back again to this concept of plasticity and this, how that's really unique to the human brain and our ability to, again, learn, change, repair. And I'm thinking of a listener or a viewer right now who maybe they're down on themselves and thinking, you know, I've really gotten into this bad habit, bad routines, and this is just what I'm destined for. And here we are saying, you know, you have agency, you have the ability to um, control your behavior. Um, and really through your behavior, rewire your brain. We often hear, you know, to change a habit takes 30 days of consistency. What's your reaction to that? And then any, I don't know, word of encouragement or wisdom for people who are trying to change certain habits and behaviors and what that will require from your perspective as a neuroscientist. Neuroscience has done remarkable work on formation of habits, maintenance of habits, and breaking of habits. So this is one area in which I see that the study of the brain really can advance our self-understanding as a species. So I would say that how long it's going to take you to change a habit really varies based on how long you've had the habit in the first place, because that really determines how strong the connections and the pathways in the brain are that support that behavior, but also what kind of behavior it is and how attached to it you are. Um, so it varies based on the domain. So I wouldn't want to say look for results after 30 days and if you don't see them, then give up because sometimes it takes 60 or 90 or a year. But what the research shows is that usually most of the time it starts with very small incremental changes because the brain generally tends to be resistant to rapid change. But incremental change is a lot easier because you slowly rewire the way that your networks are organized to support a new behavior. So if you can just create, if there's a, a difficult behavior you don't want to be engaged in, if you can create a small gap between yourself and that behavior that you can then push and make grow and grow and grow, mm -hmm. that's the path to freedom. So if, for example, uh, you don't want to be eating ice cream every single night, perhaps just starting by decreasing your portion size or waiting 20 minutes after you finish dinner and then having your ice cream, not expecting to go cold turkey, but just creating a little bit of space of distance between you and that stimulus that you can then make grow slowly over time so that your freedom comes out again and you're able to choose whether or not you want that for your good. Um, but I'll also say at the same time that in the end, uh, it's a grace. Change is a grace. And it happens all the time through relationship of realization, what it is that you desire, and then being in a context of friendship or love where you're supported to adhere to that good instead of what you've been following in the past. And I think anyone who's lived <laughs> in this world has had experiences of this. And so looking back at your personal history and saying, oh, you know what, through this friendship or through that relationship, I've already changed. There's already been an experience in my life of newness or of new freedom or of conversion or of healing. And so that's a reason for hope. And that's a reason to begin again and to depend on those relationships and say, like, I'm starting again from what I really desire for my life and not what my habits are right now. And to be patient with yourself. Absolutely. To be merciful, to know that we're fallen. And as we've said before, our freedom is constrained. And so to not uh, look at ourselves with, um, with shame when we fail, but rather in gratitude that every day that we get up again is a chance to be in again.
That's profound. That, that to change a person, to change my person, a lot of times another person is yes. really essential for yes. that. And, and and I think we've all had experiences of that. And it, um, it makes it much easier. Final question that just came to my mind. I'm curious, um, again, from your perspective, you have this neuroscience and theology talking about the ability to change, to overcome habits, to overcome vice, um, childhood adversity. Do you look at certain saints that kind of stand out or saints you look at in your work who have overcome early childhood adversity, who have overcome something and are witnesses of, of doing just that? So many of the saints. Thank you for asking. Um, I think of when it comes to childhood adversity, Margaret of Castello, whose parents were um, neglectful and abusive of her, and she had physical uh, handicaps and perhaps even intellectual ones as well, but went on to become, in her simplicity and poverty of spirit, a, a radiant example and, and spiritual mother to so many. So she's a great intercessor for those who've experienced any kind of trauma in their background. But really any of the saints, because if you look at, I mean, from the great, uh, the patristics, and you, you look at St. Augustine and his journey of conversion, that was such a struggle for so long until that grace was given to him of, of, of encountering Christ, um, all the way up until our day and age and the saints who have recently died. I think one who's particularly dear to me is Chiara Corbella Petrillo, who's a young Italian woman who was a, um, a mother to several children and uh, and then received a cancer diagnosis during her third and first healthy pregnancy and chose to carry the baby to term instead of. And if you look at her and the way that she gradually came to this luminous vocation, I mean, it was a journey of complete ordinariness of relationship with her boyfriend and they fought and broke up and got back together. And um, But she was just faithful to the circumstances that were given to her. That again, like I was saying before, the the greatest elements of human life are the simplest ones. It's not the great accomplishments that we have or the moments of human glory, but the beautiful relationships that enable us to change and manifest in our lives an impossible life and love that is a witness of the resurrection. And so all of these saints from, you know, from the time of the Lord to our own today, who has embodied uh, what it means to be human, that it is a response of love to our creator and redeemer that can then turn us into a source of life for other people. It, it, the, what it means to be human is so simple. It's, it's just that. Dr. Sophia Crow said, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. It's been a joy. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful for the time that Sophia took to sit down with us. And again, so impressed. Um, and the fact that she has this theology background and neuroscience, um, really fascinating insights in how, again, it's unitive how she incorporates both of them into her work. Yeah. So you can look at the best of uh, modern neuroscience, what she's doing, and then step back and reflect on what does this mean theologically? What does this mean for um, her faith life? And you can see how she integrates it. There's no distinct difference between both. It's, it's integrated. And yeah. One thing that, that sort of really struck me um, uh, with uh, what she talked about is how the brain is on a continual journey, you know, like with neuroplasticity and the fact that your habits can change the brain, that we're sort of striving for, you know, this, 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 this end goal, just like all of creation, we talk about all of creation is on a journey towards its ultimate perfection. Like we are as well. And, um, you know, that, that's mimicked by the fact that our brain is continually changing, trying to rewire and so forth to, to, to overcome bad 
habits and, and, and to improve. And even though there might be that more plasticity, that term again earlier on in life, it stays with there's the ability to change until the day that you die, which <laughs> gives some hope. Some hope, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, but that was fascinating. And again, especially when we talked about evolution, to hear your insights as well as a biologist on the evolution of the brain. So really great to speak with her. No, it was a wonderful opportunity. And sets us up pretty perfectly because this is, again, the end of season three, but season four will be back and focus on consciousness. Yeah. So we were talking about human evolution and now we just started to talk about the human brain. And now, you know, for the, the one level, what is consciousness and what does that mean and 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 how do we understand it? And, and so um, this sort of what we've talked about with the brain, just natural segue into exactly. season four. And so with that, as season three begins to come to a wrap, we can't end yet without going to the office hour segment. So here are the last questions uh, given to you for this season. So Catholic News Agency recently reported that Brother Robert Mackey, who's a Jesuit astronomer at the Vatican Observatory, um, because they reported because NASA turned to him for help on an important space mission. NASA was in need of what's known as a pycnometer. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly to measure the density and porosity of asteroid material taken from deep space. And they typically buy this part from companies, but none of these pycnometers fit the specific criteria. So Brother Robert Mackey custom built one for NASA, which again was pivotal for their research. And it's incredible because um, of this, you know, one Jesuit, NASA is better able to understand the origins of the solar system. What are your thoughts when you heard this story? Yeah, you know, there's two thoughts. One, it's just wonderful that you can see how the church's uh, sort of <clears throat> interest in scientific discovery. There's a real tangible um, proof of that, that the church is very open and wants to understand the natural world. You see, yeah. um, as his Jesuit has is, is played a critical role in understanding that. And the other thing I think it's, it's kind of interesting in what they're looking at, looking at asteroids and so forth, meteors, they're, they're looking at what is, what, what's there and what you do find you know, often is these biological molecules that show up, like amino acids. Mm-hmm. So this is something we've talked about on the show, how, um, you know, the chemistry, you know, the physics leads to the chemistry and the chemistry leads to life. And one of the things that they're exploring is what biological molecules might you find, what amino acids and things, how this, there's this natural progression. So this research is actually, you know, looking at how the universe is sort of moving towards, towards life or is it amenable to the brain about life? And always interesting to hear how the Vatican Observatory is involved in these major NASA projects right. as well. Exactly. Okay, so totally different topic now, but one that I think is really significant with pop culture, and I'm hearing a lot of buzz about it. One of the top stories from this past year is the surge in popularity of what's called semaglutide injections, um, typically a treatment for type 2 diabetes. But There are people, including most famously a lot of celebrities who are open about it, who are taking this now for weight loss. So to be clear, not asking you to give medical or health advice to any listener, but how do these medications work? And is it safe for people to be taking these injectables long term as a weight loss strategy? Yeah, no, this 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 drug, I'm not a doctor, but I just know, you know, when they, they take them. They are they are you know mainly for uh, type two diabetics um, right to help them produce more insulin so uh, but it also slows down digestion and it also slows down and, and reduces your appetite that's sort of the, the the reason people are taking these and um, you know there are serious side effects that you can have with these the pancreatitis and things like that so you know people that are 
particularly uh, you hear stories of people taking it off label where you don't know what type of purity and what type of version you're getting. So there's a lot of risk associated with this. Um, but, you know, uh, so if you're taking this without the advice of your doctor, you know, there are certainly uh, concerns, but it does, it is known that it does, uh, you know, it's, it's effective for, for weight loss, but the, the side effects are something that you should be concerned about and you shouldn't be doing this on your own. Important context uh, yeah. on top of these like celebrity headlines that we're seeing about this. All right. Well, that concludes season three. Another great season to be with you, yeah. Dan. As it's always. wonderful. And it's a season that I really enjoyed talking about evolution. So I, my, yeah. my favorite topic in terms of the, the, um, the, the podcast. I can tell. No, I learned a lot and I hope that you all did as well. Just as a reminder, if you ever want to submit questions for the Office Hours segment, you can email info at majacenter.com. You can also give us a call, leave us a voice message. You might be able to hear your voice right here on the podcast. Just call 949-257-2436. But until next time, when we see you back here for season four, make sure to subscribe to Purposeful Lab on your favorite podcast platform and go to majacenter.com for the latest updates. We'll see you with season four. <laughs>